Who are you going to vote for? Uh, let me ask you a few questions before we get started, before we kind of answer that question. Uh, how many of you are looking forward to Wednesday when, when we get our TVs back? Yeah. You got some shows you've been missing, right? Uh, how many of you, I don't know if there's any like this, but let me ask you. How many of you are voting, anybody here voting for the first time? Raise your hand if you're voting for the first time. All right. So there's one. I can't see everyone. Let me just say, if you're voting for the first time, let me just say to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not always this bad. Uh, I, I actually apologized to my son. He's voting for the first time. And I said, son, I'm sorry. This, you know, this is what you've got to choose from on your very first time. Uh, now, if you are a first-time voter or if you have voted since the days of Lincoln, I just want you to know I'm glad that you're here today. Uh, this is such a unique election that, that as your pastor, I feel an obligation to tell you how to vote on Tuesday. So when I say that, I wonder what goes through your mind. Uh, so let me say it again. As your pastor, because this is such a unique election, I feel an obligation to tell you how to vote on Tuesday. Immediately, for some of you, you're probably like, yes, finally somebody's going to tell me what to do because I don't have a clue who to vote for. And then others of you are probably sitting there with your arms crossed saying, you're wasting your time, I ain't voting this year. I don't like either one of them. I'm just going to set this one out. And there are actually debates among Christians, uh, Christian, Christian circles about whether or not you should sit out this election cycle. Now, others of you, when I tell you that I'm going to tell you who to vote for this year, the hair stood up on the back of your neck because you're afraid I'm going to say the one you don't like. You know, you're, you're, and, and in your mind, two things that don't mix. It's politics and preachers. They should not mix. Yeah, this is a very unusual election, unlike anything we've seen in our lifetimes. In fact, I was reading USA Today this week, and on Thursday, here, here's part of the article, and this is a quote from USA Today. America's next president will be the product of a contest with no parallel in modern times. It has featured the most unpopular nominees in polling history, end quote. Someone said America is a country where anyone can become president, and this election proves it. <laughs> Finally got an amen today. Which underlines how important it is that you're here today. There, you know, I saw a bumper sticker that said, Nobody in 2016, let's regroup in four years. <laughs> uh, that, that's why it's so important that you're here today. I, I, I really want to help you. I want to tell you how to vote. I really do. I, I, that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to tell you how to vote. Uh, now, when I say that immediately, some of you... Probably most of you think either in terms of Trump or Clinton. When I tell you that, I'm going to tell you how to vote, you think in terms of Trump or Clinton, more than likely. And in the words of that great theologian, Barney Fife, you beat everything. You know that? I'm not talking today about Trump or Clinton. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for on Tuesday, but I do want to tell you how to vote on Tuesday. We'll give you three things that are hopefully would be reminders to you on Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday night. How to vote this year in the presidential election. Number one, I ask you to write these down. We'll give you a lot of scriptures today. We're going to walk through some scriptures together. Here's how you vote on Tuesday. First of all, you vote by trusting in God's sovereignty. You vote by trusting 
in God's sovereignty. Would you open God's Word with me to Psalm 11? Psalm 11. We're going to look at the first four verses of Psalm 11. It's written by David, and David said in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to Canada? Is that what your psalm... Your, some of you are just not getting that, aren't you? Let's try it again. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. Look at verse 3. Such a powerful verse. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Doesn't that sound like America today? When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's a good question for America today. And then look at the statement in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. This psalm was written by David during a time that was very uncertain as a nation. It was, an un, it was a troubling time as a nation. It was a very troubling, unsettling time. We're not sure historically what was going on, but it was something that was affecting not only David and not only the people immediately around David, but it was affecting apparently perhaps the whole country. And this psalm is a confident or a confession of, of trust in God's sovereignty over everything. That David, in the midst of this uncertainty, in the midst of this anxiety, in the midst of this national crisis, whatever it was that his nation was facing, David expressed confidence over God's sovereignty in everything. It appeared in this time, as David was writing, when you look at this psalm, apparently evil seemed to have the upper hand. They were no longer living in a time where you could count on the the world order to, to be where good triumphs over evil. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way we want it to work. In a perfect society, in a perfect environment, good always triumphs over evil. David was living in a time where that wasn't working anymore. He was living in a time of turmoil, a time of anxiety. It was an unsettling time. And so David says to these anxious people around him, something that you need to remember, something that I need to remember. David said to these anxious people in his nation these words, God is still on His throne. He says it right there in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. Yes, He knew all about the unsettling times in His nation. Yes, He knew about the anxiety. He knew about the uncertainty. He knew about all of that. Yes, He understood why people were on edge. But He said to everyone, but you need to understand something. God is still on His throne. Now, ladies and gentlemen, could I say to you today that regardless of who wins on Tuesday night, you're going to get up on Wednesday morning and God will still be on His throne. You see, that's not just preacher talk. That's true. I'm not saying that everything will be fine and that this election will go smoothly. It likely will not. I'm not saying that just trusting God, everything's going to be okay. It may not. I'm not saying that this nation is going to 
is going to have peaceful times. They're, they're, in fact, it may be just the opposite. We may be facing turbulent times as a nation in the weeks and the months and the years to come. I have no idea. I can't predict that. What I am saying is this. Regardless of how it turns out, regardless of who goes into the Oval Office, you can trust in God's sovereignty. You see, let me put it to you this way. Political turmoil does not disturb the one who sits on the throne in heaven. He's not wringing his hands in heaven saying, i got to tune in to CNN, I don't know how it's going to turn out. Political turmoil does not disturb heaven. As it says in verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple, the Lord is on His heavenly throne. Let me give you a little background historically about what David just said, because later on, the people he was writing to needed this lesson. David was Israel's greatest king. The author of the psalm was Israel's greatest king. But eventually David died. His son Solomon took over. Solomon was, was a good king. He had some flaws and problems, but for a good while he was a good king. And he built the temple. He built the first temple. And a uh, man of great wisdom. And then after a while Solomon died. And his son took over. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam, when he took over, was an inexperienced king and he was an evil man. And in 931 B.C., some would say 930 B.C., that the exact date is hard to pin down, but 931, 930 B.C., the country of Israel was in such turmoil that they split in two. In fact, you might be interested to know that the turmoil was basically over taxes over the issue of taxes. Solomon had charged so much taxes in building the temple and the other things, the palaces and the other things that he built, that the people of God, especially in the ten northern tribes, were rebelling against the taxes that they had to send to the southern part of the kingdom to build everything Solomon built. So when Rehoboam came on the scene as the new king, the people in the northern part of Israel kept saying, we need you to reduce our taxes. When he refused to do it, he said, not only will I not reduce them, I'm going to make it worse on you. I'm going to show you who's in charge. And the nation split. Ten northern tribes split from two southern tribes. Ten northern tribes were called Israel. Two southern tribes were called Judah. So this was a time where the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, God's holy nation, absolutely split. Time of unbelievable turmoil, unbelievable anger, unbelievable anxiety. But can I say to you, God was as much in control when Rehoboam split the kingdom as he was when David sat on the throne. God was in control when King David was at his zenith. God was in control and, David, and, God, and God was on the throne when David was reigning as king. But in the same way, when Rehoboam was king and the nation was falling apart and the country actually split, God was still on his throne. He did not surrender his sovereignty when, Re, when Rehoboam took over. God was still sovereignly in charge. Here's what I want you to understand. The sovereignty of God does not rest in the hands of men or women. God never watches CNN to see how many blue states or how many red states there are. I'm going to tell you what God is doing right now during this election. It says it in verse 4 what He's doing. The Lord is in His holy temple. 
the Lord is on his heavenly throne. See, for far too long, I think we've put our hope in the promises of politicians rather than in the promises of Almighty God. And maybe this election is a wake-up call for our nation. Maybe this election is a way of clarifying that our confidence should never be in a man or a woman, but our confidence should be in God. Maybe this is a way of reminding us that no political candidate will ultimately meet all of our needs. Now, to help you understand the sovereignty of God and how God is in charge of who rules over us, I want you to go to the Old Testament book of Daniel. So if you're in Psalms, go to the right and go towards the back of the Old Testament and find the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Verse 20 and 21, if you're writing those references down. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Uh, Here's what the word says. Daniel praised the God of heaven, verse 19, and said, Praise be to the name of God. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. And I like verse 21. He changes times and seasons. We understand that, right? We, just, we actually just changed our time last night. He, uh, the season has recently changed. He, he changes times and seasons. And look at the next phrase. He sets up kings and deposes them. Oh, wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pastor, Pastor don't, don't you mean the voters do that? According to this text, God ultimately sovereignly sets up kings and deposes them. Look at chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, verse 3. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's trying to, to get this dream interpreted by Daniel. And we're kind of picking it up in the middle of everything, but just notice what is said about God in, in chapter 4, verse 3, and then in verse 17. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. He's not out of office in four years or in, or in eight years. He's in charge from generation to generation. Look at verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declares the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. The Most High, God, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Go back to Psalm with me, but this time go to Psalm 103. I'll show you another reference. Psalm 103, verse 19. Psalm 103, verse 19. It's a good verse to mark in your Bible. It says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. Maybe this election has given us a needed reminder to trust in the sovereignty of God. Maybe this election is bringing us back to the realization that God and God alone is in charge. You see, because regardless of who wins on Tuesday, regardless of who wins, they're going to be there four years or eight years at the most. 
God rules and God reigns from generation to generation. He sovereignly rules over all. So, here's how you vote. On Tuesday, go vote, then go home, watch Fox News or CNN or whatever you watch, and then as it unfolds, get out your Bible and let this be your statement of faith. In the Lord, I take refuge. In the Lord, straight out of Scripture, in the Lord, I take refuge. So, that's the first way you... This is how you vote. Number one, remember God's sovereignty. Number two, this is how you vote. Remember, you are a Christian first. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Here's, here's, if you're a follower of Christ, and this doesn't apply to you if you're not a follower of Christ, but if, if you are a Christ follower, if you are a Christian, this applies to you. This is who you are, according to Jesus. He says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill, cannot be hidden. Do you know that a recent study by the Pew Forum on Religious Public Life, listen to this, a recent study by this organization showed that nearly two-thirds of Americans say that their faith has little to do with their voting decision. Did you hear that? Two-thirds of Christians say, my faith has little to do with my voting decision. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to say to you flat-footed, that is tragic and unbiblical. I want you to know something. Jesus expects our faith to permeate every portion of our lives. You cannot tell me, well, this is my religious life and this is my politics and my religion and my politics don't ever come together. Well, friend, they ought to. You ought to get in your Bible again because the Bible is very, very clear that your Christian faith is not something you take off and put on like a coat. You don't go into the voting booth simply as Keith Shorter. You go into the voting booth as a Christian. I want to tell you something. I'm, a, I'm very, very, very patriotic. I, I still get teary-eyed when I'm at a football game and, and they're singing the national anthem and, and we fly our flag most of the year, we take it down basically in the winter, and it flies pretty much the rest of the year. We fly a flag in front of our house three-fourths of the year approximately. So I'm a very patriotic person, but I want to tell you something. I am a Christian before I am an American. And my Christian faith determines how I vote. Talking about, I'm not talking about Trump. I'm not talking about Hillary. But I am talking about this. We as a nation of Christians, we need to make sure that when we go to the voting booth and after we leave the voting booth, we need to make sure that we remember who we are. We're Christians first. 
I'm not just talking about how you vote. I'm talking about what you do after you vote. I'm talking about the way you conduct yourself, the way you get on Facebook and what you say. There's something about Facebook that makes us feel like we can say anything we want to because we're on Facebook. We can act like idiots because we're on Facebook. We can be as mean as the devil because we're on Facebook. Or we're on Twitter or whatever it is. Listen, when you get on social media, you're still a Christian. You're still a child of God. You're, you're still the salt of the earth. You're still the light of the world. And it's very discouraging, not just you guys, it's just very discouraging to see in the national landscape how many Christians are, are fighting with one another over the election. And to see Christian leaders, men and women who are Christian leaders in denominations, and, and they're calling out one another and, and and accusing one another and calling each other wimps and Pharisees and all kinds of things that I can't even say, just ugly, demeaning kind of things because so-and-so is going to vote for him or so-and-so is going to vote for her. And somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that we are not children of a political party. We are children of the king. Romans 12, verse 18 is a verse that I think we all got, need to remember as we get closer to this election and as we vote and after we vote we need to remember Romans 12 18 if it is possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone even the one who votes for the other candidate I'll tell you this is a true story um, happened just a week or two ago. I'm not going to give you a lot of the details, but <clears throat> I was walking my dog and I was talking to my neighbor who is not in our church. He, in fact, he doesn't go to church at all. Very nice man, very good man, but, but he's, he's unchurched. And uh, we got to talking about politics. We got to talking about the election. And he, he was pretty anxious about it all. He was pretty upset about everything. And, and he said, can and he knew I'm the pastor here. And, and he said, I don't want to ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, uh, are your folks up there at church fighting about this election? I, I looked at him. I said, no. I thought it was kind of a strange question. I said, no, we're not fighting. What do you mean? He said, well, I've heard a lot of churches that are just fussing and fighting. And a lot of Christians I've seen uh, in the news are fussing and fighting. And, 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 and I just wonder if your church is one of those where they're just fighting about politics. I stood back and I said, no, sir. I said, I try my best not to talk about politics because I've got something far more important to talk about, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he stood back and he looked at me for a minute. I didn't know what he was going to say. He just stood there and looked at me. And then he said, you're exactly right. And then he said this. This is an unchurched man who just asked me if we're fighting about politics. When I told him no, then he said, thank you. I appreciate the fact that you all aren't up there fighting about politics. Ladies and gentlemen, regardless of whether your guy or your gal wins, we're Christians first. We need to live like it all the time. And now, the, the third one is the one that some of you really are going to need on Tuesday night. Or Wednesday morning. Probably, well, you're going to need them all. You're going to need the first one too. But, but here, here's the third one. How, how are you going to vote? Here's, here's how you vote. Prayerfully accept the results. Prayerfully 
accept the results. You see, if, if you're one of those people who you're not happy with anybody on the ballot, you know what your next step is between now and Wednesday? Pray. If you're one of those, you don't like either one of them and, and, and you're, you just don't know what to do, Here, here's how you respond. Pray. If, if your candidate loses, pray. And if the person that you don't like wins, pray. And here's the reason. Go to Romans chapter 13. I'll show you something. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2. Everyone, would you say everyone with me? Everyone. Everyone must submit himself or herself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. And in case you didn't get that, in case you're doubting that, he repeats it basically. He says, the authorities that exist have been established by the voters. No. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. He said, Pastor, could you explain that to me? Could you explain how God might put him in there or how God might put her in there? No, I'm not even going to try to. But I believe this is the Word of God. And I believe that God sovereignly appoints who leads us. Now, I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to show you. Believing that that word is true, let's put it together with 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for, there's that word again, be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Can I remind you that when Paul wrote those words, he was under Roman opposition and oppression? He had already been in prison more than once. Can I remind you when Paul wrote those words, the idea of him being able to elect a leader, that concept was foreign to him. The idea of of wanting a leader that would stand for biblical values was laughable to him. Can I tell you that when Paul wrote those words, the idea of saying, we need somebody that's going to lead us out of this mess, all of that was laughable to Paul because Paul was living under the tyranny of Rome. And Paul says, but I want to tell you something. Here's how you handle that. You pray for those who are over you that God has appointed. We'd much rather criticize them. We would, we would much rather run them down. We would much rather get on social media and talk about how this country is going to go to hell because so-and-so won the election. And Paul says, that's not the way you to do it. 
Paul says the way that you respond is you pray. So you prayerfully accept the results. You see, I know this is simple, but I just got to tell you, not everybody's going to be happy on Wednesday. Not every, your guy or your gal may not win. But I want to give you a closing word. Just listen, don't turn there. We don't have time. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, even presidential elections. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, even presidential outcomes. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when CNN or Fox News or whoever declares so-and-so as the winner, prayerfully accept the results. And then celebrate that the election is over. I'll tell you a story. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more on Tuesday. I don't know what Dave shared with you before I got into this sanctuary, but uh, Charles Coggins went home to be with the Lord yesterday. What you probably don't know is on Thursday, Charles went to vote. Isn't that cool? Last election, knowing he would never see the outcome because he was dying, he went to vote. I'm going to bury him on election day. There's just something about that picture of I've got one more chance, one more opportunity, one more time. I have the honor honor and the privilege and the duty of choosing my leader under God's sovereignty. So now, Tuesday night, he's not going to be sitting in front of the TV watching CNN. He'll be in the balconies of heaven saying, how about that? And you know what he'll see? God is still on his throne. We pray with you. As we pray today, every head bowed, every eye closed. When we, as soon as as I get through, when I say amen, or maybe even while I'm talking, I'm going to ask you to quickly, quickly come to the altar and pray for our nation. I'm going to ask you to do that or to pray right where you are. Just pray for America. Pray for our country. We're going to ask you also to pray for something else. Pray for rain. Our country needs rain. Our area, immediate area, we desperately need the rain. And it's just, someday I'm I'm going to preach a message on rain because it's a reminder that it only comes from God. It's a reminder that God supplies what we need. Sometimes we have to ask Him for it. Let's ask Him for some rain. So I'm going to ask you just to pray as God's people and do that quickly. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for another day that we can serve you Another day that we can walk with you and another day that we can open your word and realize though it's out of our control, it's not out of your control. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.